In this episode of 92Y Talks, legendary singer-songwriter Graham Nash sits down with New York One's Bud Michigan to talk about his varied music career spanning the past five decades and his new solo record, This Path Tonight. The conversation was recorded on February 25th, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Well, now I feel better. <laughs> no doubt the first time someone's tried to make a joke out of the line. From I know, that was quite a joke there. Yeah, yeah, well, such a cozy room. Yeah. It, gets, uh, <laughs> it gets better from here. Oh, boy. Um, <clears throat> we're in New York City, so let's get started with the first time you came to New York. And since we know you so much for having gone from England to California in, in, later in the 60s, did we ever have a shot? Was there ever a chance that you were going to come here and live here? I must confess that... I've always wanted to, uh, you know, spend a few days in New York, but I was always really glad to leave. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, you know, you, you must understand something. For the last almost 40 years, I've lived in the jungle in Hawaii. And so when you come to New York City, it's a little different. Um, first time we ever came, 1965, Easter. Morris Levy was a... Uh, um, <laughs> Okay. Uh, Morris Levy was the owner of Roulette Records, and he invited the Hollies to come and play. And uh, we came, and we thought we were going to do, you know, 45 minutes of dynamite, right? You know, two songs. We went all the way from England to do two songs, but five times a day, right? That was the Easter show at the Paramount Theater in, in uh, Times Square. So that was the very first time that I ever came to New York. And do you have any notion of what you thought it was going to be like in terms of being in the city before you got here? I must confess that at that point, I was more interested in, in finding record stores. Right. Because, you know, the reputation of New York in the musicians <clears throat> world is, is that, man, you can buy so many incredible records there. It'd be, so we would go from the Paramount after the five shows, and we would walk along Broadway and go in, in record stores and try and find them. I remember going to Tad's Steakhouse. <laughs> hey, wait a second. You've got to understand. $1.98 for a steak? Come on. This is a fantastic country here. Yeah. And I, I, um, I realized later that I, 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 I really wanted to live in America. I really did. And I wanted to become an American citizen because I, I wasn't comfortable being hypocritical in terms of things like Chicago, like you said, you know, writing songs about what the government are doing or, you know, all that stuff. Um, I, 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 yeah, this is an incredible country. I see this differently than you do. I'm from England, I'm not from here, so I do see it differently. <clears throat> this is an incredible country. Do we have problems? Undoubtedly. But is the heart of this country incredibly great? Yes. Do you think a part of you still looks both musically in your work and at life in general, even though you've been here for so long, do you think a part of you still looks at life through the eyes of a kid growing up in the north of England, not just that, but in post-war England? In a way, I'm still waiting to get found out. <laughs> I, I swear to God. I mean, I, 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 I've been <clears throat> present at some incredible moments in my life. And I always feel like, what am I doing here? I'm from Manchester, in the north of England. You know, we're a poor family. Why am I at Buckingham Palace talking to the Queen? Why am, why am I singing happy birthday to Bill Clinton on the lawn of the White House? I mean, there's two Graham Nashes. There's your Graham Nash, and there's this lonely guy inside here. We're different. I understand what I've done, and I'm proud of what I've done, but my God, I, 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 I'm, I'm a very ordinary person in many ways. I do something special with my time, I know that. Right. But I'm exactly the same as everybody here, going through changes and trying to deal with life the best way that we can. Uh, in your memoir, Wild Tales, which is a terrific read uh, from a couple of years ago, you really beautifully describe what life was like growing up in England, in, in post-war, north of England. And so it struck me, I was actually in California a couple of weeks ago visiting family, and I've been there many times, and I looked around and to think of, to contrast the atmosphere in which you grew up and the reality, day-to-day -day reality, and when you first get to California, 
It, it, it must have seemed like, like Oz. My friend Cass Elliott um, invited us to come to Los Angeles when we were in New York. So we flew to Los Angeles, and I swear to God, I think we were on United Airlines, and I came out of the, uh, out of the, the, the airport and saw this palm tree and climbed up the palm tree about 12 feet. Not too high, but about 12 feet. And Alan Clark, my friend who started the Hollies with me, came, came out with his bag, you know, and he said, what are you doing up there? And I said, I'm never going back. <laughs> that was how powerful it was. Yeah. Uh, let's fast forward ahead to this. Uh, I had the good fortune of seeing uh, Graham Nash in concert the other night at uh, the South Orange Performing Arts Center, a beautiful little theater in South Orange, New Jersey. Uh, the new songs are terrific. Thank you. Uh, is the process still the same as it's always been in terms of creating, or at this stage of your career, have things changed? Nothing's changed. I have to feel something before I write about it, but I feel every day. I get up in the morning and, the, you know, I check on what's going on with the world. And, and if something, you know, upsets me, I have to write about it. If I fall in love, I have to write about it. Uh, and one of the great things about being in America is that you're allowed to speak your mind. Mm -hmm. You know, half the stuff that me and David and Stephen and Neil had, uh, have done in our lives, we probably wouldn't be able to do in a different country. But here, you can speak your mind. And uh, of course, no one has to agree, of course. Right, right. That's a whole other issue. No, uh, yeah. These songs are intensely personal, as you've always written songs that are intensely personal. Does one have to, even though you've done it for a long time, do you kind of have to kind of buck up as you're creating these songs? All right, this is what's going on. I, you know. I've never had a problem like that. I, I know what I write, and I've never had a problem. And what's going on, you know, I'm, I'll share a little of my life with you. Um, I've been married for 38 years, and uh, I'm in the process of divorcing. Uh, and it's traumatic, and it's chaotic, and kids are involved, and grandchildren, and estates, and money. You know, it, it's, been a, it's been a very interesting year for me. Um, at the time, I decided that at the age of 74, I, I need to be somewhat happy for the, whatever is you know, left of my life. So while that, all that was happening, I fell in love with a beautiful um, lady uh, here in New York. She's actually from Tallahassee. She's sitting in the front row here. Her name is Amy Grantham, and I love her dearly. And she, Amy actually took this photograph. Hmm. This is a photograph of me in Woodstock. Now, you're laughing, but I'd never been to Woodstock. Because <laughs> don't forget, the concert was in Bethel, 60 miles away, right? So I'd never been to Woodstock. And this was on a friend's uh, piece of land in a snowstorm. And Amy took this shot of me. And I, I didn't know until she showed me what it was. Now, I'm a photographer longer than I've been a musician. So I have a decent eye, you know, as they say, in terms of, uh, of graphics. And when I saw this photograph, I, I, I knew that it was a, a very powerful image of me, even though you can't see my face. And this is me walking into my future. It's unknown, but this is what my heart tells me I have to do, and I'm doing it. As you start to... As you start to create these songs, write these songs, co-write these songs with a great, great musician named Shane Fontaine, uh, is there, even after doing it for so many years and having wonderful songs throughout the, the course of your career, is there any wonder or question, like in the sports world, the, the phrase is, does the guy still have his fastball? Does the pitcher still have his fastball? Is there any internally wondering of, can I still do this? No. <laughs> not. That's I'm, great. Not an iota of it. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm, I've saved myself millions of dollars in psychiatry bills. <laughs> millions, because I talk to myself all the time, constantly. I, I, you know, don't, I mean, I have voices in my head. I'm sure everybody does, you know. And it's only one voice, really, it's, and it's me, of course, talking to myself. But yeah, hmm. What can you do? Is Seriously, there, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm still waiting to get found out. Is there ever a... Uh, a, um, a sense of when you sit down, almost like a trap of, oh, I'm, I'm trying, whether I know it or not, I'm trying to write another Our House. I'm trying to not rather write another, let's say, Wasted on the Way, as opposed to something new. Is that, is that ever something you need to kind of look out for? Never. 
because that's paralyzing. Right. You know, I mean, our house was, you know, written in an hour and a half, right? It's, you know, it's a silly kind of song, really, in, in certain ways. Silly you know, in the sense that there are about eight people on the planet who don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was, it was an, you know, I've talked about this before, but it was an, you know, songs come from incredibly ordinary moments many times. And I'd taken Joni Mitchell, my girlfriend, to, uh, to breakfast at Arts Deli in, in Ventura, in, um, on Ventura Boulevard in Los Angeles. And uh, going back to her car, um, we passed an antique store. She looks in the window. She sees a beautiful small vase that she wants to buy, and she buys it. It's one of them gray, horrible Los Angeles mornings, drizzly, cold. I know it's California, but sometimes it gets cold. Mm -hmm. and, and I went through the front door with her when we got to her house in Laurel Canyon, and I said, hey, Joan, why don't I light a fire and you put some flowers in that vase that you just bought today? <laughs> As an Such a cozy room, by the yeah. way. <laughs> As an amateur songwriter, note to self, buy wife Vaz. Uh, so what is the latest thinking? Uh, is the first meeting of the three of you, there, there are several houses, as we read in all these stories, it, the first meeting was either music, singing and playing music all together, is either at Joni Mitchell's house or Cass Elliott's house, or maybe John, I think John Sebastian's house has been mentioned. Uh, is there a latest uh, We all have thinking? our truths. Everybody <laughs> here has their version of the truth, right? And in this particular case, Stephen Stills is completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happened. I I'd come from uh, London to Los Angeles to spend some time with Joan. And uh, I got, you know, got in a cab at the airport, and he pulls me up to uh, 8217 Lookout Mountain, which is where Joan lived. Uh, I pull into the driveway, and I hear people talking and laughing, and, and I'm going wow, I wasn't expecting this. I thought Joan would be waiting for me, right? You know? Anyway, it was David and Stephen, and they'd been having dinner with Joan. And um, we get there, and a lower, lower, low, and then things. And then and Crosby goes, you know, we'd smoked a giant joint, of course, right? Um, and Crosby goes to Stephen, he goes, hey, play Willie, that song we were just doing in two-part harmony. And it was a song called uh, You Don't Have to Cry, which was on the first Crosby Stills and Nash record, a brilliant song. So they sang it, two-part harmony, and looked at me, and I said, well, first of all, that's an incredible song. That, that's just beautiful. Secondly, sing it again. And they looked at each other, and they kind of, okay, and they sang it again. And they got to the end of that performance, and I said, all right, I got it, all right. Do me a favor, play it one more time. In the first two performances that they did, I'd learned the words, the melody, what harmony I was going to sing. I was checking out the body language. I was checking out where Crosby ended a phrase and started a phrase. Whatever sound vocally CSN has was born in a minute. It wasn't months and years of rehearsing. So much so that about a minute into that song, we had to stop and start laughing. You've got to understand the Birds and the Hollies and the Buffalo Springfield were pretty good harmony bands. We had never heard anything like me and David and Stephen singing. And of course, no one has any claim on the notes, but you can't sound like me and David and Stephen when we blend our voices together. So Joni Mitchell was the very first person to ever hear Crosby, Stills and Nash sing. There's a... Um... There's, there's a great story, I believe it's in your book, it's in the, the, the great biography that Dave Zimmer wrote of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. A prior visit, prior to that visit, where you had interacted with them, and they're in the car with you, and... Oh, yeah, uh, the Hollies, we were, in, we were in America on tour. We come to Valentine's Day in 67, and uh, it was a day off for the Hollies. So... One of us knew Elmer Valentine, strangely enough, on Valentine's Day, but his name was Elmer Valentine, and he owned the Whiskey A Go-Go. And so we called him, we said, Elmer, you know, we've got a day off. Can we bring our stuff down and, and, and play a show for free? And he, he understood, you know, <laughs> the, <laughs> he understood making money like that. Right. And so we did, and we did um, a very impromptu show. Uh, because the Hollies were kind of famous for their harmony, a lot of 
other musicians were there, you know, from the Birds and, and Buffalo Springfield were there, and you know, uh, Brian Wilson and you know the Monkees and you know our friends, right? And um, after the show, I go home with David and Stephen, and we're driving in Stephen's uh, Bentley, and it sounds kind of, you know rich, but it, it was an old Bentley, and he actually called it a Dentley, because there were so many dents in the car. But Stephen was driving, David was in the driver's seat, and I'm in the back smoking, and David looks at Stephen, he goes, okay, which one of us is going to steal him? Mm-hmm. And they had plans to steal me from the Hollies, and at that point, I was st- still in the Hollies, you know, but once I had heard me and David and Stephen sing together, I realized I had to go and change my entire life. I had to go back to England, leave the Hollies. My friends thought I was fucking crazy leaving the Hollies. All that fame and all them women, oh, bloody hell, are you luck, right? But they hadn't heard me and David and Stephen sing together. Was it also because the Hollies weren't so keen on some of the new music that you were writing? Yes, yeah, somewhere in the, in, in, in the basement of, of Abbey Road in London is a, is a, a tape of the Hollies um, attempting Marrakesh Express. And uh, you'll never hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I'd written, you know, I'd written Lady of the Island. I'd, I'd started re- writing Teach Your Children. And here's what happened. In 66, I wrote a song called King Midas in Reverse in Split in Yugoslavia when we were on tour. <clears throat> and we made a pretty good record of it, and uh, it got into the top 30, but that wasn't enough for the Hollies because they were used to the top 10 every time. Right. And uh, so they began not to trust me, my, my, my urgency of moving us forward in music. Um, then they want you to do an album of Bob Dylan songs, but don't like, hey, da, 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 Las Vegas kind of style, not interested. Although, I must confess, I'm singing on Blowing in the Wind, and I hate it to this day, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, wait, so that story about leaving the Hollies is obviously well known. You've, you've been asked about it a few thousand times. Um, it wasn't but easy for me. I was going to say, I, I must, Alan I Clark was like your, your bud from... He was my, Alan was my best friend, and, and, uh, and it made me feel so, so guilty for many years about leaving him, leaving him, you know, and the band and stuff. But I'd heard that sound. Right. And my heart and my soul said, that sound is incredible. You've got to follow it. And, and I've always followed my heart. You know, and uh, it was Glasby that came to the last show the Hollies ever did at the London Palladium, right? And he comes in his cape and he's got a pocket full of joints. Of course, it's Crosby, right? <clears throat> and the Hollies, whoa, they didn't like David. Oh no, because they they'd heard rumors, they knew what was going on. Uh, but it was it was Crosby that really saved my life in a way because I think the worst thing you can do to an artist is is make them disbelieve themselves, you know. Um, and Crosby said, hey, you know that Marrakesh Express and Teach Your Children and that Lady of the Island, they're great songs. Come on, man, we can record them. You know, they're, they're the fools for not doing it. And he really saved my life because I was really depressed uh, when I was leaving the Hollies because um, everything in my life was kind of falling apart, which is uh, why I wrote King Midas, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if Crosby saved your life there, you certainly returned the favor many times through the years. But let's go back a little bit earlier than that. All of us have names that only mean something to us from our childhood or adolescence, teenage years. So when I say the name Norma Timms. Uh, How the hell do you know the name Norma Timms? This is, this is what we do. This is what we do. Okay. Uh, uh, it, <laughs> All right. <clears throat> now you could make me look bad. Just I, I, I have no, no idea I'm what you're talking you about. Um, I'm 15 years old. Me and Alan Clark are going down to a Catholic school girls dance on a Saturday night. I remember distinctly a long stairway, lady, a young girl sitting at a table, and then there's the dance floor. Clarkie and I go down, give them our tickets. We see Norma Timms across the, ro- across the dance floor. What had happened is that You Send Me by Sam Cooke had just finished playing. And as you know, it, it's a slow song, so all the... Teenage boys and girls were all feeling themselves up, and the teachers were trying to separate them and stuff, you know. Anyway, uh, you know, the lights came on, and they, they scattered, of course. Uh, and I seen Norma Timms across, the, and, and I wanted 
I'll be honest, I, wa I wanted her desperately. Um, and, and so did Alan, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> so we, we start across the dance floor, and right in the middle, Bye Bye Love by the Everly Brothers came loud on the speakers, and it changed my life completely. I was used to singing with Alan. I've been singing with him since I was six years old, and we'd done, you know, the Lord's Prayer and the school choirs and all that kind of stuff. So we were kind of, we were kind of singers, but we had never heard anything like that blend of those two voices. And obviously, it's probably because they were brothers, and so they have matching DNAs, right? So, of course, they're closer to each other, and they've been doing it since they were four. And... Um, the Everly Brothers were unbelievable to me. We met them in, 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 in 1960. They came to play in Manchester. So Clarkie and I say, well, we're not only going to the show, but we're going to meet them. And we were kind of smart about it. We realized there was no tour bus, so they weren't going on to London the next day, you know, like what happens. And the best hotel in Manchester, the Midland Hotel, was only about 100 yards from where they were playing at the Free Trade Hall, so we figured they got to be staying there. Right. Me and Clarky, you know, after the show, we go and we're standing on the steps of the Midland Hotel. And we talked to the guy in the uniform there, and he actually uh, gave away the secret that they were actually staying there, but they hadn't come home yet. So Clarky and I, we missed the last bus home, and we're facing a nine-mile walk uh, to our homes, but we didn't care. And about just after one o'clock in the morning, the Everly Brothers came round the corner and they were a little drunk. They'd been to a nightclub, you know, after the show. And instead of just like partners on the head and signing an autograph, they stood and talked to me and Alan Clark for 20 minutes. We told them that we sang like them and we want to make records with them and la, 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 la. And they encouraged, and they actually called me Graham. And they called Alan, Alan. And it was incredibly important to me because my hero recognized me as a fellow human being. And it was incredibly important to me at that point. All right. Let's cut now to 1966. The Hollies are playing the London Palladium. It's kind of like that Ed Sullivan show, you know, of England on a Sunday night at 8 o'clock. You know, the kind of variety show. After the sound check, backstage, the phone rings. And my road manager, Rod Shields, picks the phone up and he goes, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 right, okay, he's right here, hold on a second. And I go, who is it? Mm. And he goes, it's Phil Everly. I said, that's not fucking, <laughs> that's, don't do that to me. Yeah, yeah. He goes, it's Phil Everly, honestly. I pick up the phone, I go, hello? He goes, hey, Graham, it's Phil. And I, Immediately, I recognized his voice. He says, have the Hollies got any songs? Me and Don are in town. We want to make an album starting tomorrow called Two Yanks in England. You got any songs? We go down to their hotel. We play them about 14 songs. <laughs> they choose seven of them and start recording the next day. And part of the backing band was a piano player called Reggie Dwight, who later became, of course, Elton John, and the guitar player, Jimmy Page, and the bass player, John Paul, uh, John Bonham. Well, you, I know, couldn't, uh, you couldn't come up Paul with some Jones, decent yeah. musicians for and this I'm thing? I'm telling you, but you could buy them for 10, 10 they were session musicians, yeah. they'd play with anybody. So all of a sudden, that's that. Okay, let me tell you one more story. 92, I'm in Toledo, Ohio, and we're playing this beautiful hall the next day. The phone rings in my hotel room, and that's kind of unusual. I, I kind of like to be, you know, invisible. It's Phil Everly again. And I go, Phil, why are you calling me in Toledo, Ohio? He goes, well, you know that hall you're playing tomorrow? I said, yeah. He said, we're playing there tonight. Do you want to come? So me and my best friend, Mac Hobart, we get on the Everly Brothers bus, right? And we, we drive to the gig. And I don't know whether you know it, but you know, at 5 o'clock after every uh, sound check, bands eat rubber chicken. And it's the same rubber chicken that they'd ate 20 years ago. You know, <laughs> awful food. But Don looks over at me and he says, so what are you going to sing with us? <laughs> I have to tell you, I was dying inside. It had been a dream of mine to sing three-part with the Everly Brothers, because that's how I learned to sing. I would sing above them, right? So I'm trying to be cool, and I go, um, yeah, well, how about, um, how about So Sad? I love that song. Dun, 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 dun. You know, right, the Everly Brothers song? 
I said, okay, let's do that. So Phil Everly looks at me and he goes, all right, I'll sing underneath Don, you take my part on top. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, because I have the high part, he said. I said, Phil, look who the fuck you're talking to. <laughs> you taught me to sing. Here's what we do. You stay exactly where you are. I'm going to sing on top of both of you. I have a cassette of me singing So Sad in three-part with the Everly Brothers that will knock you on your ass. <laughs> One of my dreams, right? The last story about the Everly Brothers. A year ago, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, by the way, there's a huge show of my stuff at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We, right? we were getting to that. But oh, is that yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and uh, it's, I saw it in September. It's a beautiful exhibit. It's nice, isn't it? It's great. The very great. first thing I sent to them from my collection, Richard Nixon's resignation letter to Henry Kissinger. <laughs> and people say, no, why? How did you get that? And I say, money. <laughs> anyway, so we're, 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 the, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame are doing a tribute show to the Everly Brothers, and they want me involved, and I'm so thrilled to, and honored to be involved, right? Don Everly had been telling everybody they didn't ever want to sing again since Phil died. But the band starts to play Bye Bye Love, and Don made a drastic mistake. He came and stood next to me at the center microphone. Mm. So when it came to the part on Bye Bye Love where Don Everly is supposed to sing, I pushed him to the microphone with mm. my hand from the back. And when he started to sing, the entire audience erupted in incredible applause. The Everly Brothers, that everybody, <laughs> anybody who does harmony, whether they know it or not, owes the hugest of debt. Unbelievable, right? Speaking of owing, you write eloquently in your book about your folks and how they never, they never curtailed your dreams. No. That, that the notion of, it, it, it reminded me of the great New York writer, Pete Hamill, uh, of uh, Irish descent, writes about when he was growing up. He's, he's a little bit older than you. Yes, he He is. writes about what he calls the green ceiling when he was growing up in Brooklyn. The notion of if an Irish kid, when he was growing up in Brooklyn, wanted to be something other than, say, a police officer or a firefighter. You know, the green ceiling. What, what, what this is not good enough for you? You know, what, you're going to be a writer? You're going to be a this? Same gonna... thing happened to me. Right. You but... were supposed to do what your dad did. Right. You were supposed to do what your grandfather did. But you write, and you've talked often about how your folks didn't impose that on you. No. Why do you think that's so? I found out why. And it's a great story. About two years before my mother died, I was talking to her and I said, Mom, why was it that you and my dad, you know, encouraged me to be a musician when half of my friends were getting slapped upside the head and get a real job kind of conversation? Why, why was that? And my mother said, because I want you to be a singer. I thought I had a good voice. I wanted to be on stage. But World War II came, I married your father, we had, you know, you three kids. It was over for me. You've been living my life. Crosby and I were doing a show at Carnegie Hall, and Crosby wants to take a pee. I say, okay, you go, I'll bullshit with the folks here, right? But Crosby doesn't come back. Right? So I'm, I'm still t talking to the audience at Carnegie Hall trying to fill in time, right? So I start to tell them the story of why I'm standing there singing and talking to them, right? And I said, and this is what I do, and this, I'll be very honest with you. I said, everywhere I go where I think that my mother would love to have sang had she been a star, which she wanted to be, I spread some of her ashes. And as I'm telling them this story, I reach my hand into my jacket and take out some of my mother's ashes and sprinkle them on the stage at Carnegie Hall, and the audience went crazy. Mm -hmm. We will get to some questions on cards. I think there are cards that have been going around, and we'll get to some questions uh, from you in, in just a couple of minutes. Uh, the understatement of the night, uh, the ups and downs of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young have been well documented. Uh, are there moments through it, especially maybe in the early years, where you just kind of shake your head and said, I understand musically that this is something incredibly special. I wasn't sure I was going to be signing up for this. Well, the truth is that 
after we'd made that first record and, and established that kind of rare vocal sound, here's what happened. On that first record, Stephen Stills played almost every instrument apart from the drums. He played bass, he played piano, he played lead guitar, he played rhythm guitar, he played B3 organ. He played it all. When we knew that the record was going to be a big hit, because we knew, right? Mm -hmm. um, we realized that if we were going to go out and play live, how are we going to do that if Stephen played all the parts? Right? <laughs> so, you know, we have to get somebody else in the band to play live, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Stephen and dinner, Stephen and, and David are having dinner at, at Armit Erdogan's house here in New York. Armit was an incredible man and a big hero of ours, was the, uh, the owner and the CEO of Atlantic Records. Um, and after dinner, Armit says to uh, Stephen, I, I knew who you should get, man. And Stephen said, oh yeah, who? Armit said, you gotta call Neil, man. So Stephen said, you know, are you kidding? <laughs> are you kidding me? I, you know, he left Springfield twice. He left us in the lurch. Are you kidding me? You want to get this guy in? So they want to get Neil. Now look, I'd never met Neil. I knew he was a great writer. I knew he was a great singer, but I'd never met him. And I said to David and Stephen, hey, look, if we're going to invite someone into this band, I have to meet him, right? I went to breakfast on Bleecker Street with Neil. After the breakfast, I, made, I would have made him president of Canada. <laughs> he was, I tell you, the guy was very funny. I don't know whether you know it, but Neil Young is an incredibly funny individual. I know his image is a little surlier than that, you know, but he's a very funny man and very, very... Uh, understanding of the music. So I said to him at the end of the breakfast, I said, tell me one reason why I should invite you into this band. And he said, you ever heard me and Stephen play guitar together, man? I said, yeah. He said, that's why. <laughs> and it, it worked. The, the music of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young is very different from the, the music of Crosby, Stills and Nash, but it, somehow it all works. I think when Deja Vu came out, I think if you didn't have it, like the police would just come to your house and just, you know, <laughs> like demand your papers. Or Those something. were our police. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there are so many stories through the years of, wow, how, how did you make it through that? The one that kind of symbolizes the up and down nature of, of all of it, aside from the great music, of course, to me is, uh, and I would like you to tell the story of Stephen Stills and the song Wind on the Water which is a gorgeous song. And, okay. And, and uh, I'm, when you tell the story, it's still kind of mind-boggling how you kind of make it through that. Well, you know, I, I want to be flexible enough to make left turns faster than anybody. Mm. But here's what happened. I was recording uh, uh, in, my, uh, in my studio. In, in, I had a house in San Francisco on Haight Street. And um, Stephen was there in the studio. I was putting on a vocal part on one of Stephen's songs. Now, I'm gonna to talk to the musicians in the audience. He wanted me to sing a major set of changes through a minor set of chords. Now, I'm good at what I do. I've spent a lot of my life learning to sing harmony. I'm good at what I do. I couldn't do it. I couldn't sing these major changes through these minor chords. My body came to the note, and it wouldn't come out. I couldn't do it. And I was pissing Stephen off, so much so that Crosby and I had recorded a song called Wind on the Water with orchestras, and, and I had the, 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 the mix on tape there. And Stephen was so mad at me that he picked the tape up, and he picked up a razor blade and sliced through the entire master. Um, I had to have him thrown out of my house. I was insanely furious. Uh, I went up to my bedroom on the top floor and told my, my, uh, my, my guy to, you know, throw Stephen out. Um, and we never talked for two years. And 
as usually happens, it's music, right? So one day I'm sitting in my house and Neil comes, right? And he goes, hey, Willie, you want to hear these four great songs of Stevens? And you want to hear these four great songs of mine? And he played me eight songs and they were incredible. So I go, so great, what? He says, well, would you and David come and help us sing the vocals in Miami? So we went. David and I sang on, there's a record called The Stills Young Band out there. All those songs were actually supposed to be a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young record. David and I put our beautiful voices on every single track. What we didn't know was that they needed product to support a tour that had already been booked. And therefore, time comes into play. Crosby and I had to finish uh, Whistling Down the Wire. Stephen and Neil took off all our voices and erased them and replaced them with, with other people and put it out as a Stills Young album. So these guys are my brothers. I love them dearly, but we fight like hell, you know, because there's four strong individuals and four strong egos up there. It's been a wild time. <laughs> and four incredibly talented songwriters. Do you think, can you point to a song that you've written and say, uh, oh, that's Stephen's influence on my writing, or that's Neil's influence on my writing. Was there that kind of cross-pollination, or was it everybody kind of wrote their stuff, and then kind There's of There's no way together? that you can hang out with David and Stephen and Neil and not be influenced. There's just no way. It's like when you, when you first start, I, I, I don't know anyone musicians here, but when you first start in music when you're a kid, you stand in front of the mirror, right? And you, and you try and wiggle your ass like Elvis, right? And you know, and we tried, me and Alan stood in the mirror trying to be the Everly Brothers, right? And then you forget all that and your music comes out your way. But always, there's always influences like that. Do you think the influences still Absolutely. go to today on this record? Absolutely. By the way, this photograph was taken by Amy. I love you. It's pretty nice. Yeah, isn't it? Pretty good photograph. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, again, we'll have questions uh, from you on these cards in, in just a, a couple of minutes. Um, can we do kind of uh, snapshots of a couple of different songs? Sure. A few thoughts on a couple of different songs. Sure. Immigration Man. I've told this story lots, but here goes. <laughs> CSNY had just done a show in Vancouver in Canada. Pretty successful. And we go to the airport on the next day to fly to our homes in California. And they let Crosby through, and they let Stephen through, and they let Neil through, but they wouldn't let me through. And it was because I, it was 1970, and I just, I was operating here on an on a H1 visa from England. And for some reason, there was some problem with it, but he, 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 he ran, you know, we ran around f signing forms and trying to figure it out for a couple of hours. I was, I was insanely furious. I, I don't like to be left out. I don't know if any of you are the same. I don't like to be left out of anything, right? And I'm furious. So on the plane, I'm thinking about what happened to me. And I go to my home in San Francisco, and I sit down at, uh, at my instrument and uh, wrote Immigration Man. Uh, can you tell us what it was like when you played uh, for Crosby and Stills for the first time, Wasted on the Way, and what their reaction was? Because it's a powerful song. It's a, yeah, yeah, it's a pretty good song. <clears throat> mm. here's, here's basically what was happening. You know, we've made a lot of music in our lives, right? Um, but I, I, want it, I want more. You know, you show me a great song, I want more great songs. You sh show me that you can perform great, I want great every time, right? Um, <laughs> my life runs me, I think. I, I don't run my life. I don't plot and I don't plan. I, I, I get up in the morning and I face my life. I mean, for instance, today, right? I'm doing lots of interviews all day, and we get a call from Stephen Colbert, and he wants me on the show, right? I had to do that this afternoon, right? I had to, you know what I mean? You, I don't plan my life. My, my life happens to me. It's really incredible. It really is. So you should go home tonight and watch Colbert. What you should also do is, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know the exact date, but we can get it for you. April 15th. Town Hall. Oh, the Town Hall. Yeah. May 14th? It's the concert, I saw it last week. Tremendous. Songs, old songs, of course, sound beautiful. The new songs are absolutely terrific. Uh, just, one a, just a quick thing about the album. 
Shane Fontaine, who is, is my, you know, the second electric guitar player in the, in the Crosby, Stills and Nash band, shares, a shares my bus with me. And in October last year, we wrote 20 songs and recorded those 20 songs in eight days. And that's the result. This is the result of that. And it was also the result of me falling in love with Amy. She is the muse of this album. Uh, David Crosby was once quoted as saying, if you want to understand Graham Nash, listen to the song Cold Rain. Cold Rain, yeah. Um, remember before we were talking about having to do what your dad did and, mm -hmm. you know, go down the mine or go into the mill. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for you, the kind of thing. I had left and had the courage to leave and come to America to follow a dream of this sound that I heard. And it was pretty successful. The Hollies were pretty successful. And I went to visit my mother in, in Manchester because she, 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 uh, she had one of the first open heart surgeries in 1954, you know, uh, and was not a well woman. And she wasn't well, so I went, I, I went to, to, to see my mother. And um, what were we talking about? Cold rain. Oh, cold rain, right. So I go and I stand on the steps of the Midland Hotel again. And it's raining, as it is most days in Manchester. <laughs> and I stood there and I watched all these people, you know, going to work and probably hating their bosses and not liking their kids and not happy generally. And I began to realize how fortunate I was that my mother and father had encouraged me into music. And Cold Rain is a, a song that I wrote on the steps of the Midland Hotel about that very thing, about having the courage to leave and, uh, and, and facing your future, which is what I do every single day of my life. A couple of questions from the audience. Okay. What is the backstory of Simple Man? Because it breaks my heart. Does it? Mm -hmm. And I don't believe this person is alone. The, the morning that Joni and I broke up, I wrote uh, Simple Man. And CSNY were playing at the Fillmore East in 1970, 71, I think. And um, I decided that I want to sing this brand new song that night. And I, I plucked up the courage to do it. It wasn't easy. It was emotionally a fragile time. And I get to my microphone, and I look up, and there's Joni sitting in front of me. And uh, it was tough to sing that song to the person that you had just broken up with. Uh, but, but we did it, and um, it's a pretty nice tune. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, in prep I've always loved the song, and in preparation for this night, we've been, not surprisingly, listening to a lot of Graham Nash music. And I will say this, when we're in the car and that song comes on, all of a sudden my daughter gets very quiet. I've really? known it's kind of like... How oh, old is she? Some, she's 12 and a half. And she's kind of like, oh, something's going on. Mom and dad are, you know, there's something in the car there. It's, it's gorgeous. How old were you when you first, when you wrote your first song? Do you remember it? I do. Me and Alan Clark are sitting on a park bench opposite Regent Road Baths in Salford, just outside of Manchester. And we had our guitars with us, and we, we started to write this song, and it was called, Hey, What's Wrong With Me? And it became the B-side of the first single that we ever made. Yeah. Because we recognized the fact uh, financially that to every A-side, wait a second, how, how do you know about records <laughs> and 45s and all that? Okay, all right, yeah. With every A-side, there's a B-side stuck to it, right? You know, I think which makes an e e e equal amount of money. And when we figured out that people were making money writing B-sides, we thought, well, we can do that. So we wrote, hey, what's wrong with me? Pretty good. Graham, which uh, of your songs comes closest to saying what you wanted it to say? Every one of them. Yeah. I don't want to waste your time. Are there any that surprise you? Any that you thought, oh, it's okay, and then it got a great reaction? I tell you, I, I've thought about this, and there's only one thing that I would change in my songwriting, and that's a, a line that I wrote in Chicago when I said, uh, uh, these rules and regulations, who needs them? We do need rules and regulations to exist as, as humanity. We do. Right. And so I've always hated that one line and wished to God I could change it. Mm -hmm. I sing it differently in, in, live. Yeah. You know, some of those rules and regulations, who needs them? Right. I kind of slipped out of it. <laughs> that's the only thing that I've ever done where I, 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 it wasn't quite as true to my sensibility as, as it should be. 
Man, if I listened to that song once, I listened to it a thousand times when I was 12 years old. In your book, you talked about Jan and Dean, Mamas and the Papas, being an influence. Uh, who were your pre-Holly's influences, and did you go see Buffalo Springfield, and was there an influence there? I never saw the Buffalo Springfield live. I love the Buffalo Springfield records. My influences are Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers. Buddy, because he was one of us, he, went, he wasn't like sexy and shaking his ass like Elvis. He wore glasses, for, for instance. He was one of us. And when, when we lost him, when he was killed, Alan and I cried like babies on my street corner. I remember it so vividly because it was my birthday, mm. right? Let's cut now 50 years later. I played a, a, a show at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, which is the last show that Buddy played before he got on that plane. And to stand in the snow and see the fence where the plane went through was insane for me. My life is full of circles, it seems. They keep starting and completing and then starting and completing. I'm amazed at my life. Hmm. A couple more. What do you think of the current crop of musical artists? For example, Gaga, Taylor Swift, Kanye. <laughs> I'm gonna preface this by telling you that for the last 10 years I've been completely submerged in me and David and Stephen and Neil's music. I put out, mm -hmm. I, 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 I produced 16 CDs in the last 10 years. David's box set of three, mine of three, Stephen's box set of four, CSNY 1974, four CDs, a greatest hits, a demo record. I've been a busy boy, um, but you know what? It's time for me. I'm loving being alone right now. Mm -hmm. I don't have to ask David and Stephen what they want to sing. I don't have to ask them what song order we want to do them in. I have all the answers. Mm -hmm. Well, you may have just answered this question, but I will I'll try and read it. While I am, the writing's a tad small. While I am happy, maybe if I keep on going. Why don't I read yeah. it? Yeah. While I'm happy that CSN are all releasing solo albums, I would hope that there would be uh, more CSN group albums in my lifetime. I am not talking about the covers, cover CD, but an album of original material. What are the chances of that happening? I hope I read that correctly. Yeah, you did. Yeah. I don't know the answer yeah. to that. I've never known the answer to any of those questions. I don't know that Neil's not going to phone me tonight and say, hey, Willie, you want to hear some new music, man? I don't know. I don't know whether there's going to be another CSN album. I know that we have passion to do it, and we can still, still sing and still play. But quite frankly, I, I, I need some space away from them. And I think it's a healthy thing. One thing I was always curious about was all these albums, especially in the early 70s. So you do CSN, you do Songs for Beginners, a spectacular album. You do Crosby and Nash album, um, Southbound Train, always loved that. And then you do Deja Vu, and was there ever, this may sound, stay with me here, but was there ever any kind of confusion like, wait, I'm writing this song, which one is this going for? Is this going to be a solo album song, or is this going to be with Crosby, or is this going to be? A lot you know, of those thought processes take place, of course. But each song is, is, is unique, and some songs obviously need to be sung by a lonely voice. Mm -hmm. Some songs need harmony. And all we do is we have, what's, we have what's called the reality rule with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. We only record songs that every single one of us likes and loves. You know, if, if I play you a song and you just sit there like you're sitting right now, you'll yeah. never hear that song again. <laughs> but if I write a song and you go, oh man, I know what Stills can do in the solo, I've got a great idea for the beginning, now we're talking, right? Did you ever, was there a song that you really liked and maybe didn't get the reaction you wanted to, and did you give them the, no, 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 let, let me play it again, you got No, I trust them, I trust them. If they said, eh, maybe, maybe not, they'll never hear it. I trust, I trust my partners. They're great musicians. What do you think it would be like to be a Graham Nash fan? In other words, to hear this music for the first time. Because you, in a strange way, 
you create the music, but you're, you will never hear it's, it as It's a been fan. a problem for a long time. I, you know, you know what we do way better than we know. Hmm. I wish that I'd never heard David and Stephen and me, I'd, I, I'd never heard the Hollies or the Springfield or the Bird, and I smoke a big one and take off the shrink wrap on this album and listen to what it is. We will never have that perspective. By the time we've written the songs and recorded them and mixed them and mastered them, we're done. We don't know what we do. You do, and I'm very envious. As we're coming down the stretch, you've talked about it numerous times here tonight and, and through the years about you being brothers. Uh, would you tell the story about you being with Crosby just before he goes into surgery for liver transplant surgery in 1994? There's an area in, uh, in the valley in Los Angeles called Encino. And uh, I lived on Encino Boulevard. Crosby lived around the corner. And Gary Gitnick, who is an incredibly important uh, doctor at UCLA, lived on the corner. And he was David's doctor. And it was obvious uh, that David needed a, a liver transplant. And so I called Gary and I said, look, you, we live around the corner from each other. Do me a favor. When Crosby's going, you know, when, it, when you say, hey, we have a match for you, when that call comes in, call me and I'll come down to the hospital with you. So I go and it's like four in the morning and I go with Gary Gitnick and we're in Crosby's room, he's lying in bed, you know. And uh, we, we talk and laughing and all that stuff. Uh, you know, even though it's, it's pretty serious. Um, the nurses need to prep Crosby. They have to shave him and do all that stuff that you do for surgery. And so we had to leave. And so as I was leaving the room, I opened the door very dramatically, and I st stopped, and I turned around to Crosby, and I said, you leave me with stills, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> and I left the room as David was laughing like fuck at all. <laughs> I meant it, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Well, somewhere tonight, Odds are good that, for example, a 15-year-old kid, either in this country or somewhere around the world, is picking up a Graham Nash, or Crosby and Nash, or Crosby, Stills and Nash, or Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young piece of music for the first time. And man, I am... God bless him. I am envious of that kid. Yeah, me too. Because uh, the stories are wonderful. And again, the, the book uh, Wild Tales, the memoir is a terrific read. And, uh, but this music has nourished us from Marrakesh, from on a carousel, even before Marrakesh, through Marrakesh, all the way up through this path tonight. And we thank you for being here tonight, and we thank you, Graham Nash. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.